This episode is brought to you by Five Bullet Friday, my very own email newsletter. It's become one of the most popular email newsletters in the world with millions of subscribers, and it's super, super simple. It does not clog up your inbox. Every Friday, I send out five bullet points, super short, of the coolest things I've found that week, which sometimes includes apps, books, documentaries, supplements, gadgets, new self-experiments, hacks, tricks, and all sorts of weird stuff that I dig up from around the world. You guys, podcast listeners and book readers, have asked me for something short and action-packed for a very long time. Because after all, the podcast, the books, they can be quite long. And that's why I created Five Bullet Friday. It's become one of my favorite things I do every week. It's free. It's always going to be free. And you can learn more at tim.blog forward slash Friday. That's tim.blog forward slash Friday. I get asked a lot how I meet guests for the podcast, some of the most amazing people I've ever interacted with. And little known fact, I've met probably 25% of them because they first subscribed to Five Bullet Friday. So you'll be in good company. It's a lot of fun. Five Bullet Friday is only available if you subscribe via email. I do not publish the content on the blog or anywhere else. Also, if I'm doing small in-person meetups, offering early access to startups, beta testing, special deals, or anything else that's very limited, I share it first with Five Bullet Friday subscribers. So check it out, tim.blog forward slash Friday. If you listen to this podcast, it's very likely that you'd dig it a lot. And you can, of course, easily subscribe anytime. So easy peasy. Again, that's tim.blog forward slash Friday. And thanks for checking it out. If the spirit moves you. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now would have seen the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers to tease out the routines, habits, etc. that you can apply to your own life. You will get plenty of all of that in this special episode, which features an interview from my 2017 TV show, Fearless. The less is in parentheses because the objective is to teach you to fear less not to be fearless. Fearless features in-depth, long-form conversations with top performers focusing on how they've overcome fears and made hard decisions, embracing discomfort and thinking big along the way. It was produced by Wild West Productions, and I worked with them to make both the video and audio available to you for free, my dear listeners. So thank you, Wild West. You can find the video of this episode, which is gorgeous. I think they did an incredible job on youtube.com slash Tim Ferriss. Remember, two R's, two S's youtube.com slash Tim Ferriss. And eventually you'll be able to see all of the episodes for free at youtube.com slash Tim Ferriss. So you can swing over there and see what is currently up. Before we get started, just a little bit more on Wild West. Spearheaded by actor, producer, and past podcast guest Vince Vaughn, Wild West has produced a string of hit movies, including The Internship, Couples Retreat, Four Christmases, and The Breakup. In 2020, Wild West produced the comedy The Opening Act, starring Jimmy O. Yang and Cedric the Entertainer. In addition to Fearless, their television credits include Undeniable with Joe Buck, ESPN's 30 for 30 episode about the 85 Bears, and the Netflix animated show F is for Family. Wild West has also produced the documentaries Give Us This Day, Game Changers, subtitle Dreams of BlizzCon, and Wild West Comedy Show. And now, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation from Fearless. 
I'm Tim Ferriss, author, entrepreneur, angel investor, and now TV host. I've spent my entire adult life asking questions, then scouring the globe to find the answers. On this show, I'll share the secrets of pioneers who have faced their own fears. We'll dig into the hard times, big mistakes, tough decisions, and how they got through it all. The goal isn't to be fearless. The goal is to learn to fear less. Welcome to Fearless. I'm your host, Tim Ferriss. And on this stage, we'll be deconstructing world-class performers of all types to uncover the specific tactics they've used to overcome doubt, tackle hard decisions, and ultimately succeed on their own terms. My guest tonight is a member of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, New York Times bestselling author, and has summited Mount Kilimanjaro, among others. He inspires audiences around the world with this message, and he conquers challenges with his own unique style. Please welcome to the stage, athlete, author, and mountaineer, Kyle Maynard. You guys ready to get the show started? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's so nice to see you. It's you too. Been nice five, to see you. It's been five years. We met a while back up in Napa. Had quite the adventure. It was. I don't remember most of it, but. Yeah. It was. <laughs> but I do remember in the sort of flashes of consciousness in between too much wine. Everyone being really, really impressed and inspired by you there. I mean, it was just, it was such a wonder to behold your effect on people. Like, how could that guy be so drunk and still stay in his wheelchair? I was like, like how does he remember <laughs> these one-liners? They're brilliant. <laughs> but what I thought we could do, since this is fearless, is that we could start not with necessarily the highlight reel, but start with uh, some of the challenges. So we are going to begin with a video and let's take a look. Every weekend we'd go to the tournament and he would, uh, he would get beat, he would lose. And we'd go and we'd get up at, you know, six in the morning and drive across the, the, the town uh, and go wrestle and he would get beat. And then I would drive home with him crying because uh, that emotional side of the, of the sport, you know, that's, you know that, that's what was, that was happening that I didn't want to have happen. All right, tell us about your first wrestling season. Then we're gonna back into all the rest, but as a former wrestler, I like talking about wrestling. So let's start there. Oh yeah, we could geek out on that. I, um, yeah, I, was, I mean, it's a short story. I was terrible. I mean, it was like, basically people were almost saying it was borderline child abuse that my mom and dad were having me do this. You know, it was, um, it was just crazy. And I think the craziest part of it too is if, if my dad were sitting here with us and he'd been a wrestler, and he'd kind of been the one to encourage me to go and do it. If he were being honest with us, he would say that he didn't think that I would ever have won a match. What was your record like the first season? I lost every match that first season and halfway through my second season. So I hadn't, still hadn't won a match. What was your last season like? So senior year of high school, had uh, 
won 36 varsity matches, beat the state champ from Alabama, Louisiana, went to the nationals and placed one match from being a high school All-American. So, <laughs> right. All right. So, yeah. It's tremendous. I, and we, we are going to dig into a lot of the wrinkles of that. So I don't want to jump too far ahead, but can you explain for people what congenital amputation is? Yeah, honestly, I have no idea. Like, really, doctors don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm not even joking when I say that, but, like, when I was born, there was no known cause. And, um, you know, my mom and dad, they were young. They were in their early 20s. And, and really, they kind of thankfully stopped looking for an answer. Mm-hmm. They, maybe there's some genetic link, but they don't know. Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood? How would you describe your childhood? And in, in yeah. the sort of in the in the early in the early days, so I was born at uh, Walter Reed Army Medical. It, so it's where so many of our like veterans that have gone through an amputation have come back to do the rehabilitation, which is crazy. That I mean, just it, there was no other reason. They had no idea that I was going to be born an amputee. Like yeah. no idea at all. The ultrasounds appeared normal. Um, so it was a big surprise at first. And um, you know, I say my mom and dad kind of pulled the ultimate. My mom especially, just like this Jedi mind trick where it was like, "You're not disabled." And I'm like. I'm not disabled. You know, it was like this kind of attitude of normalcy. Yeah. And I think that they saw that if they could, if they saw me as normal, then I would see myself that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's. <laughs> I think we'll talk a lot more about this, but I mean, you definitely, child or adult, you sort of conform to the expectations of the people around you, right? So if, if your parents yeah. are presenting you with that totally. image of yourself, then it like makes sense. sometimes too. I mean, this is kind of this is like a small thing, but it's it's and it's really not. Like I hear parents that are like, "Oh, my kid's bad at math." I'm like, "What? Like, yeah, he's not. I mean, maybe you know, whatever. He might be lazy. That might be true, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. they say that like my kid's lazy or my kid's bad at math or something like that. They don't realize how they're actually like I think in a lot of ways like they're creating that right. How they yeah. go and see their kids are gonna be how the kids see themselves. Totally. Yeah. Self fulfilling so, prophecy. Yeah. But my mom, I mean, she was the coolest with this. Where it was like you know she wanted me to have friends in the neighborhood and she knew that the socialization aspects of things were gonna be the most critical to my development and like. So she would or- she'd be out like you know corralling other kids to play like neighborhood street hockey games and you know she was working as like a temp secretary and my dad was in college at the time they didn't have money but she they would buy like the Super Nintendo so like you know the newest gaming system so they'd have friends come over and want to play. Cool. How did you, for instance, just things that I think all, all, many people in this audience probably all of us take for granted, like how did you learn to eat, for instance? Yeah, it was, um, so that was an example of where my mom wanted to help. You know, she wanted to go and do it for me. My dad, he knew that, you know, it was going to come in time to, um, you know, that I wanted to go and do, I would want to be able to go and do that on my own, right? So I used to use a prosthetic spoon, and, and a lot of times we would forget it and leave it at home, and I'd be dependent on my mom or my grandma to feed me. And, you know, it was, he kind of brought up the point, and I kind of say this like jokingly now, but it's true, right? Like, if you imagine like senior prom date or something like that, I'm not going to want like my mom or grandma hanging out behind me, like, oh, here's a bite, Kyle. Like, oh, you know, <laughs> cool. It's kind of like he got the bigger picture of the yeah. fact that like, you know, the the world was not tailored for for someone that was born like me. So then I'd have to be able to adapt to go and figure it out. What was the process like? I mean, I, don't, I was two or three years old, right? Barely have any conscious like memory or recollection of this, but I'd probably drop the spoon like thousands of times. Yeah. And did you ever wear prosthetics or consider prosthetics? I did. Um, I wore them up until I was in uh, kindergarten, and um, for like a little bit on and off, I hated them. They weren't natural; they're big, bulky, and like it just they slowed me down more than they helped. It was more of a cosmetic reason that I decided to wear them, mm-hmm. but it was. Um, 
actually one day, um, you know, I sitting like this in a uh, chair, um, surrounded by you know my like kindergarten classroom, and it was my turn to do like show and tell. And I had these big prosthetic arms on, and I'm trying to like I brought this like toy machine gun to school, which wouldn't really fly, but I'm like nowadays, right? But I'm like taking the the hooks from the prosthetic and trying to make the sound with the gun, and like I fumbled with it and dropped it on the ground, and I couldn't pick jump out and grab it. And um, I was so embarrassed. I wanted to come to school without the arms and legs the next day, and like, and my mom just she just she called the teacher and just talked to her. And um, the teacher's like, yeah, bring Kyle to the second half of school tomorrow. I'll talk to him in, in the morning to the kids. And because apparently, I mean, it's a group of like kindergartners, right? So like, it took like three hours to explain to the class like why Kyle had arms and legs yesterday, but he's not going to today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, kind of like tripped the kids out a little absorb, bit, right? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> And it, like I know we're working on letters, but take right. a second. We're gonna... <laughs> but the kids, at the end of the day, they told the teacher they said that they liked me better like that, mm-hmm. and because uh, I got to jump around, I got to go and play with them and all that, and that was the last time I ever wore them. When you were growing up, what were you most afraid of? What intimidated you the most, or what was harder than you thought it would be? Uh, definitely girls. Girls. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That seems pretty common. Yeah, for anybody. Right? Uh, but yeah, for anybody. But yeah. how did you contend with that? I was a. I mean, you know, it, it was. It was actually, you know, it's a lot of, probably, at ten years old and started to become like attracted to girls and stuff. It was like that was a lot of, probably the questioning of like what is the rest of my life going to go and look like. You know, that was a big part of it. I know. You know, it's like with anybody with any type of like physical difference you know it's a big thing it's like am I going to be able to find or seek companionship or all that right and um you know probably the most fear-filled moment of my entire life to date was uh you know not like Kilimanjaro or like stepping into a cage and fighting MMA it was like asking my senior prom date out you know (laughs) and because but at the same time too it's then you know now fast forward to where life is it's like I've had an amazing dating life. I've dated some amazing girls. You know, my mom's ticked off that I haven't like settled down to like find the right one yet and give her grandkids. But you know, <laughs> sounds like a lot of moms. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, meeting at the event with you. Neil yeah. Strauss was there, right? Yeah. And I was thinking, like, you know, so Neil Strauss. He's written eight New York Times best-selling books, uh, including The Game. So. Yeah, and you know, it's like we should totally have like a pickup seminar for guys in wheelchairs. Yeah. You know. Well, you know, I wasn't. I was going to wait until a little bit later to to ask this. But let's say if you meet a vet who's newly mm. an amputee, and they have some of these concerns, right? What's the rest of my life going to look like? Am I going to have companionship? What do you say or do in that situation? You know, I think <clears throat> it's really tough because being born the way that I was, yes, like in in you know, these earlier years, there were a lot of those difficult emotions to process. Right? There were a lot of like painful times. I mean, when I was ten years old kind of swirling with a lot of the stuff of like what what is the future going to be I mean I got to a point where I did not see like I didn't want to go on living at 10 you know it was like 10 years old obviously now being able to look back it it just you know it's I couldn't even imagine what life would be and I want them you know for someone that if they were a veteran or if they went through some type of accident or injury to be able to see that hope and that future right but at the same time to go and realize that right then for them in that moment it's 
way hard and it's a thousand times harder in my opinion to go through and you know if you live 20 or 30 or 40 years with arms and legs and then you lose them your brain and all of its neurology right it's hardwired to like when you know they go to pick up a coffee cup they go to pick it up with their hand right i've never had that programming so all of my motor development all of everything was developed around what i have currently being since it was congenital so i think it you know and now they're also dealing with all of like the emotional processing side of things too but i just i really want them to know that they are capable of living whatever life it is that they set out that they can still create the life that they they want to right it's it's not going to be easy not going to be like they don't have to process some of this stuff and deal with some of this stuff but just in like the topic of the, i mean the show it's like right like fear is is ubiquitous i mean it's like everybody experiences it all the time yeah. the difference is the people i think that have a great life versus someone that that's sort of just getting by or struggling is they think at some point maybe the fear is just going to go away and then they'll be able to start or something like that you know i think you just have to be able to jump in and find a way to be able to live your life now you know yeah what kept you going i mean 10 that's a really that's a that's a not only a sensitive period but a really early age at which to have a lot of that, that stuff, type of yeah. darkness right what inspired you to keep going or what how did you come out of that i think um if i had to pick like a moment in time it was making my first tackle in football okay let's talk about it tell yeah. us about it um I was convinced I was going to be the quarterback on the team. You know, I was like, no question, they're going to make me the quarterback. And they told me to line up as a nose guard, so defensive line. And first day of practice, we weren't even like in full pads, but just wearing helmets and stuff. And the center went to go and snap the ball between his legs. I'm lined up right across from him. And they told me my job was like follow the ball. And he basically just like stood straight up. And so I just dove under his legs <laughs> and smashed my helmet in the quarterback's legs, knocked him over first play, got the sack, came home that night, and called my dad. He's out of town on a business trip. And I was like... I think we're done with youth football. I'm going straight to the NFL. <laughs> and so there's a good photo. Right? <laughs> so that that was one of the moments. Big time because it was like at that moment, I, it was like this moment of achieving something I never thought that I could before, and like you know being a part of the team and the camaraderie and all that, right? So it was like you know all of these like psychological studies and books on like you know engagement and flow and all that right you know you when you are in that flow state then it's like you aren't thinking about anything else right that's why i love like jiu jitsu or mountain climbing that kind of stuff now because it's like when i'm doing that you know if i think about like oh man i got to go do my taxes and i get choked right? yeah right there's an immediate penalty yeah <laughs> big time <laughs> you're not so, just sitting on a couch meditating trying to get into the zone there's like an immediate repercussion immediate repercussion <laughs> but like in that moment it was like i i wasn't worried about Am I going to have to live at home with my mom and dad forever? Yeah. Am I ever going to have a girlfriend? You know, all of those fears and doubts and those questions started to kind of loosen the grip on that. And your dad, want, your dad suggested the wrestling? Is that how that started? Yeah, he basically tricked me into coming out. So the rule was is that if, if, for me or my sisters, if we signed up for any type of sport or activity, we had to finish it. Like, or at least finish the season. You know, we didn't have to sign up and do it again, but you had to, like, sign up you know, and, and, and finish that season. So I did sixth grade, didn't want to ever do it again. I was like done. And, um, 
seventh grade signups came up, and my dad was like, yeah, maybe you should try it again, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. And he said, you know, I want to tell you something I never really talked to you about. He said, I didn't win a single match my first year either. And I knew that he'd become a good, a really good wrestler, like, in high school and college and stuff later on. I was like, wow, really? And uh, he's like, yeah, nobody ever wins a match their first year in wrestling. It's actually really common. He said, but everybody wins a match their second season because you'll find somebody who's their first season and you'll beat up on them, right? <laughs> so I was like, awesome, sign me up. And to make a long story short, I was interviewing uh, my dad's dad, my grandpa, for my book when I went through to, when I was writing. And, and I was asking him, I was like, did, when my dad was losing all his matches his first year, like, did he want to quit too? Because I did, I begged to quit all the time, and, and they would drag me out to these tournaments. And he was like, had no idea what I was talking about because that whole story had been a complete lie. So, <laughs> based my entire life off of that lie, right? And so then the first kid that I beat, I see this like, you know, before the match started, I hadn't beat him. Like this kid's like, oh, that kid's a first year wrestler. He's pretty scrawny. I was like, you know, he's not even warming up the right way. Like, look at him jumping around. Like, oh, we shook hands. I was like, he got a weak handshake. Like. Took the kid down and landed on top. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. And I was like more shocked than he was. Like, I'm just going to keep doing it. So, so let's, uh, let's pull up a video of one of your wins. Let's All take right. a look. have some photos and when they have a chance I want them to pull up a photo of like a low leg attack. I was really impressed yeah. when I saw this photo. I so, could demonstrate one right here if you want. You know. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's do, do it. it. All right. All right. <laughs> I mean, I knew at some point this was going to happen, please right? Please do not break my knee. All right. Yeah, we'll go through it slow. All right. So how, how do you want to so do So like, you know, normal wrestling match starts. We come out. We go and shake hands, yep. right? And a lot of times, like, guys would like push on my head and kind of yep. like stay away, right? Yep. So. Yeah, My yeah, strategy was to be able to like close the distance down and just boom. So very John Smith. Very John yeah, Smith. Yeah, yeah. Little John Smith aspect, yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. I don't know how many more of those I want to do. We're getting old, but, but we need I'm, to like no, be careful, I, right? I was gonna, yeah, I was like, My heart rate got too yeah. high there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what other uh, this is this is probably going to apply to like 0.001% of you but I, I yeah. want to ask like, what other what were your go-to moves other than that so I did um, like a, a lot of like kind of like duck under type positions mm -hmm. and so, yeah, so or I'll show like, you guys what a duck under is so Especially if you come in a lot of guys are going to wrestle me down on their knees right yeah, yeah. so then if he if he like reaches over the top I can boom shoot across here come around and like take him down <laughs> or like so Favorite was uh, one of my favorite takedowns to this day is like um, like a Jack Wizard. Oh so my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> just, we'll go get a little. Oh, God. But if he's on top of me, you can start here, right? Yeah. So if he starts, so he like goes your position. Yep, or, yeah. Exactly. Right. So he goes over top here, then I'll just tuck oh God. and be able to roll. Oh. <laughs> so. I think it's time for water. All right. We definitely, the, um, the biggest go-to, I won't, I don't think it's a good idea to demonstrate. What was this? But um, my biggest go-to technique was uh, called the jawbreaker. But, you know, basically would take 
someone's jawline like that and use like kind of a front headlock position and just crank on the jaw until oh, God. they just turned over on their back. Boom, pin me. <laughs> so that was uh, the jawbreaker. Oh my God. I'm really glad we did a little demo. <laughs> you don't wrestle with all your guests? Is that a... <laughs> No, this is new. Okay. I mean, maybe I should. I'm glad I could be your I'm first. Like, I'm not going to pick you. Yeah. No, of all the people I'm going to pick. So you were inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I mean, uh, my heroes are in that yeah, Hall of Fame. Totally, mine too. How did how did that feel? How did that happen? It was. I mean, in in contrast to how bad I was when I you know, when it started, it was really just a cool moment to be able to kind of like reflect and look back and see, you know, how just. Just how I mean, how far we got in the comic. Mean, it was really, it was really pretty wild. There was a big argument in um, when I was competing in wrestling and jujitsu as to whether or not I was unfairly advantaged. You know, which is an interesting juxtaposition yeah. of like kind of like how bad I was, like I talked about when I first started, to then, you know, later people were saying, yeah, he's unfairly advantaged because I was competing against, you know, in high school I weighed 103 pounds and you know many moons ago and you know I'm going up against these 103 pound kids and weren't huge kids right and I had a bigger upper torso than than the kids I was going up against and you know some of the probably some of the similar people that were saying that like oh man this is like child abuse that his parents are making him doing this are now saying like he's got an unfair advantage over Wait, he's like, you just pinned my son yeah <laughs> exactly I changed my mind <laughs> and it happened quick it was really interesting it was um you know, and to, but to me, I think in a lot of ways, I think that with the wrestling and all that in particular, it was a cultivated advantage. Mm -hmm. And I'm all about, you know, you're all about those like, you know, advantages that you cultivate, give you an edge. What did you, what was the most valuable thing that you took from that whole experience? It wasn't until pretty recently within the last two or so years of doing some like deeper self-reflection that I realized um, I could kind of summarize my biggest fear was being seen as helpless. You know, and you can imagine, like, as a kid, I, of course, like, it was just like, if other kids were laughing or joking or making fun of me, I would, would want to, like, prove to them that I wasn't helpless. So wrestling, mountain climbing, those are sports that, you know, are, I mean, have a little bit of a bent of, like, I'm going to show you that I'm not helpless, right? Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so, but I think that, now in acknowledging that, I'm so grateful for that too, but I don't have to be driven by that. It doesn't have to be the thing that's running the show. And I think that if we have these experiences and these fears that are outside of our awareness, then, then it can start to go and run the show. You know, and I've, I've met billionaires that, you know, there's some moment in time, right, that was like running the show for them, and maybe it was from the time when they were six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. I heard someone ask an ultra runner once, they said, well, what are you running from? Mm. And it's uh, that switch, not everyone makes it, going from running away from something to running towards something. Yep. How did you develop that awareness so that you could use it as a tool, maybe, when you choose, but not to have it use you? Like, how did you develop that awareness? I think that one of the competitive advantages that I have is, is that like the disability from a physical side got me to ask some bigger philosophical questions at a younger age, you know, and I, I know that 
it, it just that kind of started to generate some just questioning, deeper questioning of like, what is this about? You know, what is this experience about? What is this life about? What, what, what am I, you know, why did this happen? What, what, what is the larger context here? Like all of these sort of things. And then like, what did people thousands of years ago think about this? You know, and even before that, you know, I mean, like it just, I think that we're all sort of in this inquiry in, in some level, but then we kind of, you know, we get stuck in our day to day and whatever. The physical disability, I think sometimes is like a, it's a little bit of an access in that. It kind of forces you to, you know, maybe for some kids to, to kind of look at some of those things at a, at a younger age. For me, I could summarize it in a, in a recurring dream that I had. Um, it wasn't until two years ago that I had an experience of like remembering this dream. And when I remembered it, like I just started crying and I could see all of my successes and all of my failures. And it was just like, like it was like these buildings, like, you know, that I built just kind of crumbling down. And the dream was, I was in the backseat of my dad's um, car and he had this um, e-brake that he would go and pull. So like you'd push it with your thumb and he'd pull it up. Or it was like a parking brake, right? So the parking brake on this hill. And um, all of a sudden in the dream, I'd be in the car by myself and the parking brake would come off. And I would try to do whatever I could to like grab it and I couldn't pull it up. I couldn't stop the car. And then the car would just pick up speed and eventually it was just like, you know, just like wake up and have this like, fear of like kind of falling and feeling right and it was like just this intense this intense fear and this intense feeling of like helplessness that was like from the time as maybe like five or six to like middle school I had that dream a couple times a year you know it was pretty it was pretty intense and um I I think now <clears throat> you know if I'm in the airport traveling Sometimes I'll pull up the gate in the plane. The gate agent, you know, is like, we'll have different responses. Sometimes they're totally cool, and I tell them I'll jump out of my chair and I'll go and walk to the plane. Sometimes, sometimes they won't believe me, and sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, you can't do it. And I'm like, can I, you know, it would trigger some of that stuff where it would be like, you know, um, like some of those, like, helpless feelings. And, and I'd have this thought that would be there of, like, man, like, you know, you don't have any idea of, like, the places that I've been. Like, you probably couldn't go, right? You probably couldn't be able to climb Aconcagua or something like that, you know? And I'm like, I have that thought, and I'm like, oh, man, it's a stupid thought. Because I think if you have awareness of something, you know, it's, like, pops up into my head, and I'm like, uh, well, that's just my own fear. It's my own insecurity, and then it can go away. But if it's just behind the scenes running the show, it's like, you know, I think a lot of us, I mean, human beings, we're wired that for whatever reason, we kind of make these decisions up about ourselves. I think also human beings, just evolutionarily speaking, we're wired for survival, not for yeah. happiness. It's not what your genes are, are optimized for necessarily, yeah. right? So it's a, something you have to, at least something I have to work on. It's like I can go dark really fast for whatever reason. It's just, it's, <laughs> been, it's been a trend. Yeah. And, um, but I love that you share that, though. You know, you're real. And I want people to know, for me, I've had periods of time of feeling like a fraud in front of groups of people, you know, where I'm like, man, like I'm really struggling with X, Y, or Z. How do I have any right to go and tell anybody here anything? It, it, but then now, and I'm sure you've maybe had similar experiences, but like I've gotten to be around enough people where I can see that it's almost the people that, that don't share that, that those are the ones that I'm like, ugh. 
you know, I want to stay away from because it's like they don't acknowledge that, like, because it's everybody, we all have that stuff, right? We all do. Let's pull up a video of you doing some speaking. I would say my purpose in life, at least from my perspective, would be to help show other people their purpose. That other people and what they think is totally irrelevant. That for me, inside my heart, this is what I'm capable of doing. This is what I deserve. They're thinking about, if I were in your shoes and I were running your business, I could not do it. That is a lie. You decide. You decide what you're capable of and believe and deserve. Why do you do your speaking? 200 days on the road. That's a lot of days on the road, man. Why the speaking? What drives that? To me, it, it is, a, like, there's, there's, again, so many different whys that are interconnected with that. It's like a, a form of artistry for me. I think that, like, you know, a speech is, is something that I can bring that creativity to. And it's also, you know, but it's, it's I, I'm, I'm not that one thing. I'm not a speaker. I'm not an author. I'm not any one thing. You know, I'm not even an entrepreneur. I don't care. Like, I don't care to have any label, not an, you know, an amputee or a wrestler or whatever. I want to not know what I am, right? So I can go and, like, find and be curious and figure it out. Like, if I had to pick one defining quote for my life, um, Emerson said, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Applaud you, man. We're going to go to some audience questions. If you had to pick the most inspiring religious or spiritual leader, who would it be and why? I would say Emerson, for sure. Like, I've read all of his works, and I mean, it's, it's had a profound impact on I me. Mean, Joseph Campbell's another one, um, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just constantly like, I geek out on that stuff hard. The thing I'm obsessed with currently is the, uh, the Upanishads. And so, yeah. um, you know, it's just like, thousands of years old, a lot of these ideas, right? When it's, we we kind of like to go and put different wrappers on things and think that we've got, you know, different smart ways to figure stuff out. But it's really just like, it's, it's this knowledge of life and this inquiry is like so old and it, it cracks me up now. I, I love, I'm also a big fan of like Martin Seligman and positive psychology and Albert Bandura, you know, and the sort of the, the research side of things, but it like cracks me up. And I was talking to, I told you, did an a, a interview with uh, Mark Devine today. And um, Navy SEAL commander, and we were just joking that like researchers will be like, new, you know, new headline, smiling makes you happier. You know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> wow, thanks. That's where my tax dollars are going. Right. Sweet. Yeah, it's like this was probably you know it was like ten thousand years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. Somebody, had, uh, hey, put, smile and you'll feel better. Put two, two together. <laughs> so you, I read this. And I was like, of course, just because we spent a little bit of time together. But it was like, uh, known for having nice handwriting. And I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> of course, God would have better handwriting than I do, which you do. Uh, so I wanted to actually pull up an example of your handwriting uh, as much for the content as the handwriting itself. I know there are many people who, whether they admit it or not, view disabled people as inferior. We are, quote, broken in their eyes. We are of no use, no value, and we are just running out the string on life. But I believe that we are all disabled in one way or another, including disabilities of character and personality. My disability just happens to be more visual than some. <laughs> this, this really, when I read that, I was, it's, uh, it really impacted me because it's true. <laughs> I mean, that sounds maybe 
a simplistic way to put it, but it's really profound, right? You have people walking around with, everybody has their own wounds. They're all battling their own yeah. demons. And I remember I was really bent out of shape about some personal flaw or weakness. And uh, I think it was, it, was, it was like an ant. I think it had too much to drink. And she said, don't worry, people are like Swiss cheese. And I was like, what? And she said, no, we all have holes. Like, mm. we all have those gaps. So, so this is from Twitter, at MastinMD. What specific things do you tell yourself when the thought of quitting enters your mind? Mm. I think a lot of it is I, I try to examine just, like, what, what is that coming from, right? Because sometimes I think that, and this is one of the things that's kind of changed and shift, right? I used to talk about like, oh, never, ever give up. Now I'm like, giving up is super important and you should give up a lot of things a lot quicker. A job that you hate, a relationship that sucks, like give it up immediately, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but there's other instances where too, it's like, that's a gray area. And I know something that we'll probably talk about was like the mountain climbing, yeah, you know? Yeah, for sure. But, you know, for a little taster of that, a lot of like, a lot of my experience with mountain climbing is, you know, gotten to the point where I'm like, how far is too far? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I can go and have, like, I can push myself, but like, will there be irreparable harm? Yeah. You know, and like, you know, so of course, like, probably 95% of any climb that I've ever done, like, I'm like wanting to quit. And, um, you know, the 5% that I'm not, it's like I'm either hanging out with my friends or looking around at how beautiful this is, but it's like a lot of the time I have that thought going through my head and the, the most brutal parts of, of either climb in Aconcagua or Kilimanjaro that I took on were the last day that I could have paid extra for like a helicopter evac. And I realized it was like because I had that option and that choice to, to, to get that evac, it made things like the suffering way worse. Uh, so I want to I wanna pull up a photo of you. I believe it might be in your gym, could be elsewhere, but working out on rings. So it looks like you're having a pretty pleasant afternoon. <laughs> pretty good time. Yeah. Uh, what role has building physical strength played in overcoming mental, emotional, and social challenges for you? I think that easily that the physical is the, the easiest and first access to, um, you know, I think just did like gaining some type of like inner awareness. I mean, it's just that like as a baseline is an awesome place to start. But I think it just doesn't doesn't stop there. I think sometimes if you have people that they aren't able to really contextualize what they're doing and see how the physical can map into everything, right? It's kind of all the same stuff. So the same lessons you're going to go and learn there, the things that are going to go and help you in business, the same things are going to help you in your relationships or your passions and all that. It's just realizing that it's kind of all the same and nothing happens quick. Yeah. So it's, it does take a lot of time and frankly, you know, a lot of suffering and a lot of failure and a lot of like stuff that nobody really wants to like do. It's like more of like, I want to take this pill and get this effect. I want to go and have this thing, you know, I mean, I, I love a lot of like the, the biohacking stuff, but I feel like kind of like the, the thing that we go and do by cheapening the process is like we skip a lot of steps along the way. I think a lot of people forget that they're supplements for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally. not primary. Uh, and just to underscore something that you mentioned, uh, or looking at it maybe a slightly different way, but I, 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 this is how I've thought about it a lot, is like when I'm in dark periods, 
the f most fruitless thing that I can do personally, I'm not saying this applies to everybody, but it's to try to think my way out of it. Mm. And so people say mind over matter. I think you can also go the other direction. I think you can have matter over mind. Mm. And using your kinesthetic body, rather than viewing things through this lens of like, it's like Cartesian duality of mind and body, like your brain's an organ. Like that stuff mm. is completely intertwined. Big so time. Using the physical as a way to develop mastery over the mental has always been um, my default when I'm feeling. It's like a good place to go. I mean, it's because it's like that immediate sort of yeah. access. Yeah, I mean, go to the pain cave, man. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> figure, figure stuff out figure like real shit quick. Out. But to that point, too, something just popped in my head. I had an amazing meeting a couple weeks ago. Um, got to have um, a meeting with the Secretary of the Army at the Pentagon and talk to him about some of these veteran issues and why is it that 22 veterans a day are committing suicide? Yeah. You know, and it's staggering. I want to know, like, what are they doing about that? But the, um, one, of the, one of the things that he said really stood out, I think is helpful in this sense. He said whenever he gets to that place of being really stuck, he knows that one of two things like, are happening, probably both, but one, he's trying to do it all by himself. Mm -hmm. And the other is he's just not asking for help. What advice would you give to someone who has the tendency, and I do quite frankly, to isolate myself? It's mm -hmm. like the worst instinct. So I'm like, let me just sit down and figure this out on my own. And I, it's just like, whoosh, yeah. whoosh. how many times do I have to do this before I learn my lesson? But what advice would you give to someone who has a tendency to do that? <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I totally would agree I'm the same way, but it's really like, lately I've been like, nah, screw that. You know, it's like, I, I want to, like if, it, I mean, really like what's running the show there? Yeah. I think is a big part of it. Is it my own like ego? Is it my own sense of like I can't go and like have support or help from other people? Like you know I need to go and do it on my own, or no one's going to go and do it as good as me, or whatever those kind of stories are. It's like just it's all BS, and like it just if it's made up in my head, that's just like I can go and unmake it up, right? I can go and, and surround myself with amazing people that are like way smarter than I am. You know, um, some of my like best friends and business partners like have the exact opposite strengths that I have. As soon as we partnered together, then it was like things just shot up through the roof, right? Yeah. And you put the right people in the right places. Like, that's the whole, like, special forces mentality. Like, the, that one person in, inside of, like, an environment can go and change the whole landscape. And I think it's so true in business, the whole idea of kind of being, like, the solopreneur and grinding it on your own and, like, the late nights. It's like, yeah, that can be a good place to go and get started when you don't have, you don't have a team and access to people. But even then, it's kind of an excuse because you have... Yeah a community of people that you could tap into and your friends and family and other people like that that are going to be willing to champion your cause. The one thing that's, that's helped me quite a bit, you guys can check this out, uh, the musician Amanda Palmer has mm. a TED Talk on asking for help. And I remember watching it and then I read her book and I was like, yeah, dummy. <laughs> like, if you're suffering... Call one of your friends who's already figured it out and ask them for help. It was just like such a kind of in retrospect hilarious epiphany for me. And it's always been really hard for me to do that. Uh, but but in those deeper moments of suffering, I think it's the moment that's like the least thing, the, the, the last thing you want to do. Yeah. So you mentioned Emerson. What books have you gifted the most to other people, if any? Or if you were to gift huh. books to other people? I think it is a, an article that I know that you've recommended a bunch that I have gifted to all my entrepreneur friends is um, 1,000 True Fans. 1,000 True Fans by Kevin Kelly. Yep. Oh, yeah. And that's made a huge difference for me because I'm like, you know what? Frankly, it's like 
you know, is my own ego like that like tells me like, oh, I need to have an audience the size of Tony Robbins or Tim Ferriss, right? It's like, no, necessarily. Like I need to, to really be able to communicate and tap into like who is my tribe. Yeah. And I, you know, in the process right now of like literally like I'm finally like like balls out, I'm creating it. And like um, you know, the the rapper that I want to go and use for that brand is the the mountain movement. But the whole idea is I want people to go and like get over this idea of, 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 you know, of knowing that they have all the right answers and that their beliefs are the right way. It's like, and, and, and any belief, right? I challenge any belief in that. I'm not talking about one thing. It's like a mountain, it does not care how, like what race you are, what gender you are, whether you're in a wheel, wheelchair or not, it doesn't give a shit, right? Mountains like zero Fs given. I mean like 100%, right? Like, and it's, it's, it's kind of in, its, in, in that it's beautiful in its indifference, I think. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like, I think want to go and empower people to go in their own metaphorical mountains. Like how do they go and climb those things? How do they go and build that team to ultimately like leave the world better than they found it? Like it's, cause it's right now it's insane. You know I mean? Like just the, the polarity and all that stuff that we're experiencing and seeing it's, I don't know. And I, I mean, I'm guilty of it too, right? We all have our assumptions and beliefs and judgments and it's just like, it's impossible to see somebody else's perspective with that. And when people, when you look at me or if someone looks at me for the first time, if you haven't seen the videos and stuff like that, it doesn't automatically occur to someone like, Oh, that guy's clearly an MMA fighter or a mountain climber. It would be true. There's a, like a quip that has been, profoundly impactful in my life. It was called the map is not the territory. Yeah. And basically we all walk around as these mental cartographers as if like, you know, the maps that we go and create our reality as are the territory and they're not, they're just maps. And any map that you go and create can get outdated. It can get, you know, you need to go like do that software update, right? <laughs> like yeah, for sure. And update your map. Yeah. And it's, um, strikes me, you know, what I've really tried hard to do in the last couple of years myself, in, in part to you know, correct this faulty software or like buggy software that needs updating. It's really simple. I mean, I, I was told at one point, this is some advice I got on conflict resolution. They just said, say less, two words, say less. <laughs> wow. Like, okay. Yeah. It wasn't directed at me, but it certainly applied to me. And uh, I was like, yeah, like how many problems would be solved in this country and around the world if, yeah. if it was just like before you can state a strong opinion, you have to ask Three questions and listen, listen to the answers. And actually listen. Yeah, like, like, actually listen. A lot of things yeah. would resolve themselves. What is something you've changed your mind on in the last few years? <clears throat> I think uh, I, I grew up, I mean, in a sort of, um, you know, in, it's not even really something I've talked about at all publicly, but in, you know, I grew up in, um, with, you know, very sort of Baptist views and, and all that, right? And then, you know, I went for several years privately, like as a period of like full blown like atheism, you know, and it was like it's kind of secretly harbored some, you know, sort of degree of spirituality. And really it was after like a trip to Thailand and sort of became interested in like sort of Eastern thought and things like that, that I expanded that view to a lot more things. But then also too have come back to Christianity and seeing the beauty of like the message that Christ taught. And I think that like now, I think. I would still, I mean, I identify myself as a Christian of someone who's a follower of Christ, but at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm not religious. But it's like this sort of, um, you know, I think it's more broad, inclusive view of, like, spirituality. And I think that sometimes, too, it's, you know, 
I think that we think that we're so smart. I mean, we've got all the answers for this stuff. And sometimes, you know, especially now, I mean, with, with interesting things, it's like stuff gets spooky, you know, at certain levels. And it's like there's some other interesting answers and implications there that, like, are, are fascinating. You know, stuff that Buddha talked about, stuff that Lao Tzu and, you know, all of these teachers, it's like, or Campbell. I mean, Campbell was the biggest one. Joseph Campbell talked about this, like, monomyth and how these different creation stories occurred with very similar structures around the world at different times. And, you know, but as human beings, we get so, again, coming back to this idea, we get so locked into our beliefs that we'll start wars over these things. Yeah. And, like, we will literally kill millions of people off of, like, a lot of this, this stuff that we hold on to. And that's why I want to, I mean, bring this idea that, like, really kind of not knowing, I think, is the better place to come from. The entirety of my life was, like, not knowing, comma, you know, but we're going to figure it out. And, uh, you know, I, I, when I think to the best doctors I know and how they distinguish themselves, there's an expression. There are a lot of funny expressions in, in medicine that doctors have. So one is P equals MD, pass equals MD. <laughs> so wow. just like wow. any industry, just like any trade, you have people who are at the bottom of the class, people who are at the top of the class. Yeah. So the people at the top of the class, I think, generally have another expression, which is we know that 50% of what we think we know is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. Mm. So I wow. think if more people walked around I love that. keeping oh, that in mind, wow. it would lead them to ask more questions as opposed to seek to antagonize, seek to prove themselves right, yep. right off the bat. Right? Uh, so I want to talk about mountain climbing. How did, let's say Kilimanjaro, how did that come into the picture? Uh, total ADD. It's <laughs> the best explanation yeah. I have for it. Like, it was like I did a CrossFit sectional workout. The first workout was a thousand meter row and then sprint up this like 900 foot stone mountain and tore the skin up on my arms to get up there. And I was like, but it got to the top. It was like an hour and 46 minutes. It was destroyed, but got there. I was like, wow, this is beautiful. My friend <clears throat> sitting there and we're talking and, and, um, and I told her, I was like, I want to do, I want to do Kilimanjaro. She was like, you're freaking crazy. Like you just tore the skin off your arms doing 900 foot stone mountain. And this Kilimanjaro is like 20 or 21 stone mountains stacked on top of each other. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know how we're going to do it, but you know, want to figure it out. So it was, that was, I mean, it was just a brutal beat down from, you know, the universe on every level after that to get to that point. Now, what did you do? All right. So you have yeah. this stone mountain, was it? Yeah. Took all the skin off of, off of your, uh, arms and legs. So what was the gear? So with that, we used uh, leather welding sleeves. And I was like, you know, this will protect my arms until I realized the leather welding sleeve was a lot tougher than my skin. And oh. that's, so the, it was the leather that ripped it up. Yeah, but it was like, yeah, it wasn't stone. Uh, but it was like, we tried bath towels and duct tape. And like, thankfully, I've got you know, these amazing friends that were sitting and just duct taping stuff on my arms and my feet for hours, you know. And like, we tried, um, uh, you know, like oven mitts. You know, like cooking oven mitts and like several of them stacked up. And we tried um, full hip and knee pads, all these different things. We finally got smart and took a mountain bike tire and cut that into pieces and then like wrapped it around and give some traction and created this prototype shoe. So I used that uh, to get up the mountain and we didn't get the final gear set complete until two and a half weeks before we left for the climb. What was driving it? 
that's that's yeah. a big commitment, right? And you presumably have other stuff going on. Uh, that takes a lot of focus. Big time. What did you hope to get out of it? And the, the biggest driver there was um, for me personally. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to kind of understand unless you've spent a significant portion of your time and your life in a wheelchair. Okay. Because you don't necessarily realize how many places you can't get to in the wheelchair. In America, I think that like we have the greatest country in terms of that I've experienced in terms of accessibility. Um, part of it is because I think we're a fairly new country, right? But it's like the, in terms of the world, um, you know, there's, but there are many places that are off limits. And that was, you know, when my friends would go and run off into the woods, I couldn't go and follow them. And so I, when I was a kid, I wanted to, and I wanted to go and have a way to go and do it, unless I was like riding on a buddy's back and you know, we wouldn't get very far doing that. But it was like, that was my access into the woods for a long time or in the mountains. And I wanted to go to nature. I wanted to experience it. I wanted to go and see these places that I read about in some, you know, like poem or something. You know, I'm like, the snow is a Kilimanjaro. I want to see that. As the ever-present threat of deadly avalanches looms, scree and dust make movement difficult for Kyle. Spikes are attached so he can navigate the icy slope. And Kyle's will to succeed is clear. Nothing will stop him. As day breaks, Kyle Maynard pushes ahead, a beacon of will and determination, showing the world that no matter what, there is a way to the top. Once he's reached the summit, Kyle Maynard's mission is complete, and he can pay tribute to the men and women who've inspired him, who choose to live life to the fullest because there are no excuses. a gigantic billboard and you could put out a short message, few words, whatever it might be, to a huge audience, to the world. What would you put mm. on that billboard? It's um I think this time I'm gonna switch it up and go with that Campbell quote where he said, you know, he was asking like the purpose of life and he said it's you know, and, and I think you could have a debate with this, but, you know, really, I think there's some beauty of it where he said it's to follow your bliss and that doors will open where there are previously only walls. If I'm attached to this idea of, like, oh, I have to be the speaker guy, yeah. then I, I don't necessarily get it. And that sometimes, like, maybe that could be the most empowering thing to go and give up everything and go and, um, you know, and, and pursue a different path. And I respect people that, that are willing to go in to do that and completely recreate themselves. Well, I would just want to thank you, Kyle, for honestly showing everyone that they can do more than they think they're capable of doing. It's a huge gift to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Kyle Maynard. 
Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcast guests. And these strange esoteric things end up in my field and then I test them and then I share them with you. So if that sounds fun, again, it's very short, a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend, something to think about. If you'd like to try it out, just go to tim.blog slash Friday. Type that into your browser, tim.blog slash Friday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.